How are you doing? Good. It's kind of hard to preach after that moment. I was almost crying. I don't even know why. But and I'm not even a part of the church. And I'm like, oh, it's so sad. But it's exciting at the same time. Um, yeah, and even just while we were praying, I just felt like God was saying, like, in the next month or two, he'll be giving you vision and purpose. Like, it, like prophetic vision for, like, things that are going to come. And I just really felt that on my heart. The things that are going to be birthed in the next month or two might only happen in the next few years, but God's really going to speak to you about what to actually build in this next season as you move over. So I'm really excited for that. I'm excited to be at Sarepta. I love Sarepta. I love this church. I always stay with the Blackmans when I'm in Durban, so I'm really, I just love you guys so much. I don't know where Alan is. Oh, there he is at the back. <laughs> He's on sabbatical. I'm helping Alan on his sabbatical. I won't let him do anything at home. He isn't even allowed to clean up. <laughs> Ant has to clean up. <laughs> or Mary Ellen. But, <laughs> but Uncle Al, <laughs> as you call him, isn't allowed to do anything on a sabbatical. It's really awesome. But like I was saying, it, um, it's an amazing privilege to be here. If you haven't heard me before, I'm a part of a um, ministry in Europe called Awakening Europe. And basically it was birthed by a man named Todd White and Ben Fitzgerald. In 2015, they were standing on a field in Nuremberg, Germany. And it's the same field where Hitler would commission his youth armies to go and take over Europe. And they were standing on this field, and they were standing next to each other, and both of them saw this picture in their mind. And they turned to each other, and Ben said to Todd, Bro, I just saw this vision of people running from all over Europe, getting set on fire, and then going back across the nations. And he turned back and said, dude, I just saw exactly the same thing. So from that moment, Awakening Europe was birthed. But how many of you know it's easy to have a picture like that? It's hard to actually do something with it. So suddenly Ben feels called to start renting stadiums in Europe. The problem is he has no influence in Europe. Nobody knows who he is and he doesn't have any money. And God says, hire the stadium. And long story short, like even pastors would fly from Europe to America where he was living at the time and say, you shouldn't do this event, no one's going to come. It was harder to actually win pastors than souls in the beginning. Nobody was on board with what he was doing. And long story short, a year later, over 27,000 people showed up and over 1.6 million euros came in. And that's where the ministry was birthed. And since then, we've rented stadiums in the Czech Republic. Um, we've rented stadiums in Latvia, in Melbourne, Australia, and we've branched out. It's amazing to see what God is doing throughout the earth. One of my favorite testimonies in, in Australia was after the event, on the Monday afternoon, we just said, we're going to host an open like, baptism on the beach if anyone wants to be baptized. And in my mind, I was like, I don't know if anyone's actually going to come, but it's worth a try. Let's see. Will anybody come to this baptism? And we showed up on Monday afternoon. As we were walking down to the beach, there was about three or 400 people on the beach worshiping. And about at least a hundred of them were brand new believers that actually came to be baptized. And while we were baptizing people, I asked one of the girls that was getting baptized, is this just your first time giving your life to God? Or are you rededicating your life? And she said, no, it's my first time. I've never received Jesus before until last night when I came to the event and got saved. So I said, okay, how did you come to the event? How did you hear about it if you weren't Christian? And she said, well, yesterday, seven people handed me free tickets. So I thought I should come to the event. And I came and got saved. So it's really beautiful to see what's happening when you hand out 80,000 free tickets in a city 
and just seeing the lost meet Jesus, it's a real privilege. But it's been incredible being in South Africa for the last month. We've seen amazing miracles. God's been healing people. Demons have been coming out of people. People have been encountering Jesus. And I really believe this is a very important time in South Africa's history right now. And hopefully I'll share like a little bit about that today. But let's just pray once again. Turn our hearts towards the Holy Spirit. Jesus, we love you so much. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the privilege that it is to even come and be here with you, that your word says where two or more are gathered, you are there in their midst. So we didn't come here today just to hear about you, but we came here to be with you. We came here to encounter you. We came here to leave differently than we walked in. Because when we come into your presence, we can't help but stay the same. We love you, Holy Spirit. Have your way in this room today. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to just read a Bible scripture. Actually, before I do that, I really felt, do either of you have pain in your bodies? Where do you have pain? In your back. That's where I thought, can you stand? Can we pray for you quickly? Church, can we stretch our hands out in this moment? Can you actually pray for it? Just put your hand on your shoulder right now and, and just begin to pray. Just, just command the pain to leave in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for all pain leaving her body right now in the name of Jesus. We command that back to straighten. In Jesus' name, we command the pain to leave in the authority of Jesus. We thank you right now for complete healing in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you try out your back? See how you feel. Is it, is it still sore? By the looks of you saying, ow, I would think it's still sore. We're going to pray one more time. Can we just stretch our hands out one more time? Even Jesus prayed twice. I have no idea why, but he did. It's kind of hard to imagine. God, we just thank you for healing right now in the name of Jesus. We command your back to be healed in Jesus' name. All pain to leave right now in the name of Jesus. Complete healing. Every disc go back into place. Every vertebrae align in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for your healing presence, Holy Spirit. Amen. You try it out again. Much better? Don't lie to me. Is it much better? I know it's better because the first time you're like, ow. I was like, that's not a good sign. But it's feeling much better? Wow, praise Jesus. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing when God heals because it's always God's will to heal. Jesus never turned anyone away and said, you haven't learned your lesson yet, I'm not going to heal you. Right? People think God gives sickness to teach people a lesson. It's not anywhere in the Bible. Jesus never said to anyone, go away, you haven't learned your lesson yet. And if God was giving sickness to teach people a lesson, it means that Jesus was destroying the works of the Father on earth. Because God's like, he has pain to learn your lesson. And anyone that comes to Jesus gets healed. Not anyone that he goes to. Anyone that comes to him. Does that make sense? It's not the same thing. Because if it was anyone he went to, it would show that it was his choice. Like he was choosing them. But it wasn't just anyone that he went to. It was anybody that came to him received healing instantly. Which meant if God was giving them sickness, he was destroying what the Father was trying to do. And then Jesus would be like, you healed, God would be like, Jesus, what are you doing? They hadn't learned their lesson yet. But he never does that. God never gives sickness. He only heals. It's always God's will to heal. It's always God's will to heal. And people often say, well, what about the thorn in the flesh? 
It's a good question. If you read the chapter before that, he's actually talking about persecution for a whole chapter. He was lost at sea for a day and a night. He was whipped hundreds of times. He was beaten. And many times in the Bible, when thorn in the flesh is used, it's talking about persecution in the Old Testament. It was when there was an army would surround them and want to kill them. They would say, I had a thorn in my flesh. So it's actually talking in the context of persecution. That's totally off topic for this morning. That's just a rabbit trail for everyone. I'm going to read a passage to us this morning out of John chapter 6. I'm going to read two, two separate passages. And we're going to parallel these two separate passages. Is that okay? So you, you can turn to John chapter 6 if you have your Bible. John chapter 6. So John chapter 6 is the crazy story of where Jesus multiplies the loaves, right? We've all heard the story. And essentially what happens is he feeds thousands of people. And once he's, once he's fed thousands of people, people come to kill him, basically. How would that be? You feed thousands and people come to try to kill you. It wouldn't be a great day. You know people are there to kill you. So what he does is he sends his disciples away on the boat to cross over the sea. And he goes up onto the mountain to pray. Now, scholars actually believe where he goes onto the mountain to pray, he can watch the disciples the whole time crossing the water. If you actually go to the location in Israel, where he's praying is over a mountain that watches the water that the disciples are crossing over. And what starts to happen is the waves start to get big in the boat, the disciples start to get a bit afraid, and Jesus walks out to meet them in the midst of their boat, in the midst of the storm, which is a beautiful picture that Jesus doesn't always calm the storms in our lives. He meets us in the middle of the storm. That's the first point. Sometimes you hear people say, come to God, everything's going to be okay. I'm like, no, that's not even biblical, actually. Jesus preaches a great sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We call it the Beatitudes. He preaches it, and then he says, if you build your life on what I've just taught you, you'll be like a house built on the rock, and when the storms of life come, you'll be okay. I'm like, Jesus, that's not really encouraging. He's like, the storms of life will come. I'm like, okay, but he promises us a rock in the midst of our storm. So Jesus doesn't calm the storm. He watches them struggle in the storm, and then he walks out to meet them in the midst of their storm. And he goes across to the other side, and we'll pick up at that point, um, verse 22 of John 6. The next day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there, except the one the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples. His disciples had gone away alone. So they come the next morning to, see, to find Jesus. And only one boat left there. And they remember the disciples getting into one boat. So then they're like, okay, how did Jesus get across the water? He's not here. Only one boat's gone. They're quite confused. Verse 24. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boat and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. See, this is crazy. They have, no, they have no idea where Jesus is. He's not on the side of the water where they are. And there's no way they think he could have got to the other side of the water. Are you with me? But they're so hungry to find Jesus. They're like, I'm going to just take a chance and I'm going to row across the water. Now, I don't know if you've ever rowed, but I hate rowing. It's very difficult and you just go in circles. I tried it once. If you get a bad partner, you'll just go in circles. I'm like, I don't enjoy Rowing, they must have been desperate to find Jesus. And I love Jesus for multiple reasons, but one of them is how he reacts to people. Like these people have searched for him all morning. They're so hungry to find him, they've rowed across the water. 
you would think he's going to be excited to see them, right? You would think his reaction is going to be like, wow, good and faithful servant, I love you. Thank you for putting all that effort in. You must, be, you must really love me. Let's read what Jesus has to say to them. Verse 25. And when they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now here's our loving Jesus. Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the sign, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I'm like, Jesus, they've been rowing all day and you aren't even going to say hi? You're just going to come straight out with a rebuke. Most assuredly I say to you, you don't seek me because you saw the signs, because you ate the loaves and were filled. So the, my first thought is, he's saying, you don't seek me because of the signs, but the loaves. I'm like, Jesus, the loaves were a sign. No one else had that thought? The loaves were a sign. He's like, you don't seek me because of the signs, you seek me because of the loaves. I'm like, Jesus, you had five loaves that fed 5,000 people. That's a sign in my opinion. But he's like, you don't seek me because of the loaves, you seek me because of the loaves. Verse 27, do not labor which food which perishes, but food which comes, which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal on you. And verse 28, they say this, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And if you look into the scripture, what those words actually mean, they're saying, what shall we do that we work the business of God? That's what they're asking there. Does that make sense? They're saying, what can we do that we can actually work the business of God, the way of God doing business? Ah, oh, there we go. The giant screen. I love it. And he says, this is the business of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So what he's saying there is that you seeking me because you ate bread and were filled, but you're actually missing me, if that makes sense. You're coming to have loaves, you're coming to be filled, but you're actually missing. See, they came to be fed by God and not learn the family business as it were. Does that make sense? So these people come and they encounter God, and now we're going to parallel to another story with a similar interaction when someone encounters God, and we're going to look at the two different outcomes and why the outcomes were so different. And the second story we're going to parallel to that is John chapter 4. Now John chapter 4 is, is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible for multiple reasons. But John chapter 4, you have this woman which essentially is an outcast in society. And many preachers will tell you that she was an outcast because later on we find out in the story that five men, she'd had five husbands and she was on her sixth husband. So, so people will often preach it from the perspective of that she was cheated on by five men. No, that she cheated on five men. That she'd had a relationship with five men and she had chose to leave them. But actually, if you look at the context of the day, if she had cheated on five men, she would have been killed. Does that make sense? So if she was cheating on men, she would have been stoned for it, culturally, so it shows us that she actually wasn't cheating on men, but men had left her. Men had called her worthless and didn't want to be with her anymore. So that's the context you have here. And Jesus and his disciples are walking on the road, and they stop at Samaria. And it's quite interesting, because many times in the Bible, Jesus has actually told his disciples, don't go into Samaria. I don't know why, but there's, there's a few times where he actually says, don't go in, into that city. The Bible says in John 4, Jesus gets tired, he gets weary, and has to sit down at the well. Which is a crazy thought that our God, the one who created us with a breath, humbled himself to become sin, 
in, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that he could actually get tired, which is really crazy to think about. And he sits down at the well, and when he's at the well, this woman's approaching. And the reason why she's approaching at this time is it's 12 noon, it's the hottest time of the day, so nobody's outside at this time of the day, okay? Because everybody would go and get water in the morning or the evenings when it's cool. And she comes out at the hottest time of the day because she doesn't want to be seen by people. She's an outcast. She's insecure. She doesn't want to be seen. She doesn't want to speak to people. She's afraid of people. So she tries to sneak out the hottest time of the day to get water. And when she's coming out to get water, she sees this man sitting at the well. And straight away she knows this man is Jewish. Which I love because something about Jesus must have just been very Jewish. She literally goes up and says, you a Jew. That's all she knows is you a Jew. But let's, let's pick up right there. Verse 7 of John 4. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Jews and Samaritans never spoke in the time. But how many of you know as Christians we aren't called to conform to the culture of our time? Amen? He actually wasn't allowed to speak to her culture. He didn't care. He didn't honor the culture of their day. We aren't called to advance culture. We're called to advance his kingdom. It doesn't matter what the culture says. You're called to advance Jesus' kingdom. He just broke a lot of cultural rules right there. And he didn't seem to care. Verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you ask for me? Yeah, verse 10, Jesus answered and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this proves to us at this point that, he doesn't, that she doesn't realize the gift of God that's in front of her, right? So she's speaking to him, but she doesn't realize the gift that's actually there. But Jesus offers her this living water. And she goes on to say, like, the well's really deep, and um, they keep talking. And then this love encounter happens, which I love. Jesus again. You wouldn't think that this is going to be a love encounter the way he says it. She eventually says, okay, Jesus, sir, give me this water that, that I may not thirst again. So Jesus convinced her. She's like, I'll have the water. Finally, right? And this love encounter happens. Jesus is like, okay, you want the water? Go, call your husband to come here. Jesus knows she doesn't have a husband. She's like, go and call your husband. She's like, I have no husband. Jesus is like, that's right. You have no husband for you've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband, you're right. And suddenly your heart drops in this moment. And I believe that's where the love encounter happens. Because she realized that Jesus offered her living water, knowing that she had slept with five men and she was on her sixth. See, the goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. We want to tell people you have to go and sort out your life and then you can receive God's love. That's not how God does it. God said, you want living water? And once she said yes, then he said, okay, this is what's wrong. It's the goodness of God that led her to repentance. Are you with me? And the outcome of this is that in this moment where she realizes the gift of God, the gift of God's love, if you skip down a few verses, it says, In verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went into the city and said to men, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
So you see a woman that's an outcast in society, that doesn't want to be seen by people, suddenly she encounters the free gift of God, and she goes back to the people she's hiding from, and brings the whole city to meet Jesus. She literally brings the whole city to meet Jesus, and all that changed for her is, she realized the free gift of God that was in front of her. Once she realized God's love, she went into the city and brought a whole city she was hiding from to meet Jesus. No one even had to teach her on outreach. No one even had to tell her she had to do outreach. It was the natural overflow of realizing the gift of God that was in front of her. She was like, my city doesn't have this, I have it. So I'm going to go and bring my city to what I've just experienced. And she goes into the city and she brings a city to meet Jesus. And it's this crazy story, but I believe many Christians, we meet Jesus at the well. It's the greatest moment of our life. And then we set up a campsite at the well and we never leave. And God's telling us to leave the well and go into our cities and make a difference. Because how many of you know it's easy to stay at the well and ask Jesus to go into Samaria? Right? Jesus touched my city. Because then if things go wrong, it's really easy to say, Jesus, things are getting worse in my city. Jesus never even goes into Samaria. She brings the city to meet Jesus. See, we aren't called to just wait at the while and tell Jesus to touch our city. We're called to bring our cities to meet Jesus. That's your and I calling. See, God's answer for South Africa, God's answer for Durban, for your neighborhood, for your next door neighbors, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are the one who's called to bring people into an encounter with Jesus. It's, it's, it's on you. You're like, Jesus touched my next door neighbor. He's like, I already told you to touch your next door neighbor. Right? Because it's easy. I get it. It's easy to stay at the well and say, God, things are getting bad in Samaria. Can you go into Samaria, please? Please, Jesus. Like, it's comfortable at the well. Right? Because there's no responsibility on us. But she goes and brings a city to meet Jesus. And that's what each one of us are actually called to do. And often I find that when Christians first meet Jesus, they actually do go into their cities. Have you noticed when someone first encounters God's love, they want to share the gospel with people? It's a natural overflow almost. We call it, you're just on fire, you're mature. We say things like that. Uh, You're mature. You weren't supposed to mature out of being in love with Jesus. I thought that was good, Alan. Thank you. I got one yes. You weren't supposed to mature out of it. What actually happens is, and I'll use a great example. I love the story of Israel in the desert. I mean, yeah, Egypt. Well, Israel, Egypt. When Moses takes them out, we've all heard the story, right? He frees them. He frees them of Egypt. And it's this crazy story where they've been kept in captivity for years. They've been beaten with with whips every day. They've been slaves. They've been building the pyramids. It's a terrible life they've had. And Moses takes them out. He splits the Red Sea, this crazy story, kills thousands of people with water. It's pretty gruesome, actually, if you think about it. Thousands of people getting washed away by water. I love the Bible sometimes. It's pretty crazy. I was preaching at a youth the other night, and I was like, do you guys know that there's a place in the Bible where youth mocked a man of God and bears came and child the youth? And all their eyes got big. It's actually in the Bible. Pretty crazy. That's a whole other story. But it's either Elijah or Elisha get mocked by youth and bears come and eat the youth. That's not even, that's totally off topic though. Don't mock me. Um, But so Israel gets free and Moses takes them out. And it's this crazy thing of every day a huge cloud is leading them. And every night there's a huge ball of fire. 
and they're still complaining, where's God? I love it, right? A huge flame is leading you by night, and you're like, Mo, where's God? We've been stuck out here, where's God? We don't know where God is. Have you... They literally say, have you brought us out here to die, Moses? I'm like, dude, look, there's a huge cloud of fire by night. And they keep going, and then at one point they start complaining. They're like, Moses, did you bring us out here to die because we have no food? I'm like, you just saw the Red Sea split in half. Surely Jesus can provide food for you. And they keep complaining. Then Moses basically and God make this deal where God rains down croissants from heaven every morning. Think about that manna. It's basically like croissants from heaven. Imagine waking up and walking out of your door. Some of the husbands in you are like, honey, that needs to happen at home. (laughs) Or vice versa. Amen. (laughs) But basically they wake up every morning and there's croissants from heaven outside and it gets better. God's like, you can have as much croissants as you want. So much so that tomorrow they're going to be fresh again outside your door. I'm like, that sounds like heaven. No wonder they took so long in the desert. I wouldn't want to leave that. I'm like, I'll take croissants forever. Make it 60 years. I'll stay and eat my croissants and quail every day. And they're pounding this gift from God every day. They're just pounding it. Gift from God. So crazy. And then this verse pops up that I read in Numbers 11, which really confused me for multiple reasons. This is what Numbers 11 verse 5 says. We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. They come to Moses complaining again. Yeah, they say, remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. I'm like, you didn't eat fish freely in Egypt. You were slaves and beaten and you got fed fish every once in a while. You didn't eat it freely. And then it gets even worse. They say, we remember the cucumbers. I'm like, who remembers cucumbers? You must be really desperate to be remembering the cucumbers. (laughs) I have a vegan sister. She loves this verse. They say, we remember the melons. I'm like, okay, melons are okay. The leeks. I'm like, you have got to be, you remember the leeks which you ate. And you're getting croissants and quail every day. We remember the onions and the garlic. I'm like, God, I don't understand this. They remember the onions and the garlic, but they're getting croissant every day. But this verse shows you that when we become normal with the gift of God, we lose perspective. When When it becomes normal to us, we lose perspective, and it changes everything. That's why there's a stat in the church that 90% of people that are brought to church are brought by someone that's been saved for less than a year. Because that gift of God is still new to them, and and they're still passionate about telling people, but then just like Israel in the manor, we we become the same with the bread of life, where it just becomes a part of our normal life. If that makes sense. And we aren't passionate about it because we lose perspective of how amazing it is to just wake up and be right with God every day. We forget. So we lose the passion to tell people about Jesus. We should never lose that passion because we should always remember that we, you and I have the privilege of waking up right with God every day. And your your next door neighbor doesn't have that privilege. That person you walk past doesn't have that privilege. But as we lose perspective, we lose our passion to share the gospel with other people. And if we can just remember that, what the gift of God is and who it is, in that place, then we'll want to share the gospel with people. It's the overflow of realizing the gift of God and who He is in our life. It's not something we have to be forced to do. You might think, well, I'm an evangelist. Every Christian is called to win souls. People say, well, what about an evangelist? Well, 
In Ephesians, where it speaks about the evangelist, this is what it actually says. It says, I gave to the church an evangelist, a prophet, a teacher, the other two, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So if somebody comes to me and says, I'm not an evangelist, I'm like, okay, you don't get the mic to teach on evangelism. That's literally what it means. He gave the evangelist to teach the church how to evangelize. So if you aren't an evangelist, okay, you don't get to teach on evangelism. But we all still have to preach the gospel because that's Christianity. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And how do we do it? By remembering the free gift that's in front of us and the privilege it is to wake up and be right with God every morning, to have the bread of life when we wake up. And if we can keep that perspective, we want to share the gospel with people. But it's when we lose perspective of the free gift that we stop wanting to share. We become busy with life. Things go on. I get it. One of the greatest weapons that you have is just being available to God. It's just turning your affections to Him in the supermarket. God, is there anything here you want me to do? I guarantee you if you just became more available for Him to use you, He would use you much more. Like when you're in the supermarket, He wants to use you every time, I promise. To at least just encourage someone with simply Jesus loves you, why are we not used? Because we just don't simply turn our hearts to Him and say, God, who do you want me to speak to? What do you want me to do? We don't make ourselves available to be used. We have a lot of things going on. I get it. We have, we have work. We have business. We have family. But if the greatest weapon that we have is making ourselves available to him so he can use us wherever we go. And the parallel between these two stories is the people in John 6 that we read about, you never hear about them again. They don't make a difference in society. They aren't heard about. Nobody knows what happens to them. And that's because they're coming to Jesus to be fed for what they can get from Jesus. But in John 4, this woman comes to Jesus to be led by him. So the question is this, are you coming to Jesus just to be fed or for him to lead you? Because if you come to him to be fed, you'll still get bread, you'll still get what you need, but you won't impact your society. But if you can come to him and say, God, I want to learn the family business. How can I work the works of God? How can I learn the family business? He'll show you how to advance his kingdom. And that's when we actually make a difference on society. So my encouragement for you today is, you don't just come to Jesus to be fed just to get your needs met, but you come to him to be led by him. Because how many of you know when you advance his kingdom, he takes care of everything anyway? There's this crazy promise in Matthew 6 that if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you get everything else. I'm like, God, that's too easy. So he's saying, if you seek first the fact that you're right with God and his kingdom, you'll get everything else you need. And it shows us how easy it is, how easy it is for you and I. That all we can do is seek his kingdom and he'll add all those other things to us. Because I really believe that God's answer to this nation, to your neighborhoods, is actually you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That God wants to impact society through you, through leading you. And all we have to do is come back to who the free gift of God is. And and I'm going to close with one story. It's quite a long story, though, so don't worry. I'm not closing yet. I'm an evangelist, so I get three closes anyway. Amen? This is my first one. It's a crazy... I mean... Yeah, it's a crazy story out of Acts 8 that I'm going to read in a second. But 
Sometimes living in a nation like South Africa or in different nations, there can be so much need, you almost think to yourself, God, how can I make a difference when there's so much need around me? I don't know if you've had the thought, I've had that thought before, like there's so much need that needs to happen, how can I actually make a difference in this place? What can I actually do? And basically, the end point is, if you can be available, you can make a difference in your nation. But I'm going to read from this passage. In Acts chapter 8, basically, there's a guy chilling in his room one morning. Put yourself in this position. You're in your room one morning, spending your quiet time with God. You have your Joyce Myers devotional open. You have your cup with its scripture on it. And you're just having a cup of coffee with God. And suddenly the Holy Spirit says this to you. I want you to walk to Peter Maritzburg. Is that 100 kilometers, roughly? Okay, something that's fine. Walk to Peter Maritzburg. In the story, it's exactly 100 kilometers where he gets told to walk. So, so this picture is crazy to me because you're just chilling in your secret place and God's like, I want you to get up and walk 100 kilometers south. And then the Bible even says this is desert. For some reason, it clarifies it's desert. So you have a man that's called to walk down a road. He doesn't even know why he's called to walk down the road. It's a dirt road. He isn't told what to take. If this was me... And my friends were like, what is God saying to you? I'd be like, well, God started to speak to me about transition, right? He's going to give me more stuff. Right now, he just started the conversation. But this person just decides to get up and walk and starts to walk down the road. And that's the first crazy thing to me is that he actually got up and went. And if you study it, it would have taken him two days of walking 18 hours straight to reach his destination in the desert, in the sun. I don't know about you, but I I don't enjoy walking or hiking at the best of times. Because you start where you ended and you didn't get any cardio. So, So like, he's walking. Now this is how my mind's thinking. I'm one hour, two hours, three hours. I'd be proud of myself if I was three hours into the two days of 18 hour walking. Three hours in, I'm like, God, I've been obedient. I feel like I've done what I'm called to do. I I think I can go back to my house now because I'm thinking I'm three hours, I'm four hours. That means I'm four hours away from home now. I've got to walk back. I'm five hours, God, I'm five hours away from home. I still don't know why I'm going six hours, six hours away from home. I have to walk. But he's just obedient to walk on this road. He doesn't even know why he's walking, but he's obedient to God's voice. And basically what happens is we don't know how long he walks for, but while he's walking, he ends up encountering a man who ends up getting baptized and born again. And that man who gets born again on the road ends up taking the gospel back to the whole nation of Ethiopia. So one man's obedience and a whole nation gets the gospel. He walks dirt on a, he walks south on a dirt road and a whole nation hears about Jesus. Sometimes I'm like, God, I'm called to change nations, not to walk on a dirt road. Right? With our callings, God, I'm called to business. I'm not called to stop someone. I'm called to preach. I'm not called to stop someone. I'm called to worship lead. I'm not called to stop someone. God, I'm not called to walk on a dirt road. I'm called to change nations. But if he doesn't obey God's voice by walking the dirt road, he doesn't end up changing nations. See, if he looked at the whole nation of Ethiopia, it looks too big to make a difference. But if he simplifies it to just obeying God's small, still voice, then suddenly simple obedience has huge results with God. So I wonder if you and and I could simplify it again by saying, God, I'm available. What are you telling me to do? 
Who are you telling me to speak to? Because you speaking to one person can change a nation. It seems too simple. It seems too good to be true. I read that story and I'm like, God, he speaks to one person and a whole nation changes? But it's the same for you and I. Because God's really good at making things happen if we just partner with him. That one person you speak to might be the one who starts a business that ends poverty in this nation. You don't know. Through one encounter, you can change a nation. But we just need to say, God, I'm available to you. I'm available to be used by you. And that's when he can begin to move through you. So my encouragement for us today is that if we can just make ourselves remember the free gift of God, the fact that we get to be righteous, the fact that we get to wake up right with God every day, never become, never let that become normal to you. Let it always overwhelm you, the fact that you wake up right with God every morning. You weren't supposed to leave that revelation behind and move on to something else. Because even the Bible says the righteous are as bold as lions. Which means that boldness comes from an understanding of righteousness, not a personality type. When we understand righteousness, we're going to be bold. But we weren't supposed to move on to it. For the rest of your life, you call to unwrap the idea that you're right with God. It's not something you ever move on from. Because it's something you could never obtain through your whole life's work, but you got it for free. And you, we're supposed to be overwhelmed by that idea for the rest of our life. Because sometimes what happens is we become right with God and we're bold in the beginning. And then we move on to all these other doctrines and good teachings, maybe on the supernatural, maybe how to heal the sick. And we leave behind the revelation of righteousness. So now I know how to heal the sick, but I'm not bold anymore because I'm not focusing on righteousness, which makes me as bold as a lion. So now I know how to heal the sick, but I don't know how to pray for people out there. And it's because we've left behind the revelation of righteousness, which we were never supposed to leave behind. Does that make sense? For the rest of our lives, we're supposed to be overwhelmed by the idea that you're right with God. And when you remember that, that's when you'll want to step out. That's when you'll want to be used by God. Amen? Okay, that's my one close. No, I'm joking. I don't even think I have another close. Can we stand? Was that okay? Did that make sense? So just before I close with, with a prayer, and I'm sure there'll be some ministry team, we'd love to pray for people up front here. Um, but just as an encouragement, once again, just remember that line, are you coming to Jesus to be fed or to be led by Him? Because He wants to lead you. He, doesn't, he wants to provide for you, but there's more than just Him providing the loaves for you. The thing that He was trying to get to those people that day was, I want to teach you how to multiply the loaves. Does that make sense? I don't want you just to come to get loaves. I want you to learn how to multiply the loaves. I don't want you to come to me just to be healed. I want to teach you how to heal. I don't want you just to come to me to get free. I want you to come to me to get free, and then I'm going to teach you how to get other people free. That we would come to him and say, God, I don't want to just be fed by you, but I want to learn the family business. I want to learn the way you do things, and I want to do it the same way. And that if, if we could live like that and remember the free gift that God is, we could bring neighborhoods to meet Jesus. We could bring cities to meet Jesus. If one woman can do it there, think about what all of us can do together. One woman changes the city. Think about what the hundred of us could do together. God wants to use you. God's answer for this nation is you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's chosen to do it through you. He won't do it without you. 
You are his hands and feet. We have the privilege of being his hands and feet. You are the answers to your own prayers in a way. Christ in you is God's answer to your prayers. God, touch this nation. Amen. I'm going to speak to someone today. I'm going to be, be obedient. When things get too big, when things get overwhelming, all you have to do is play your part, which is being simply obedient to God. Maybe it's just buying person coffee in line, the person behind you. Maybe it's just telling that cashier, Jesus loves you, or stopping someone on the street. But when you start to work in simple obedience, that's when nations can be changed. Can we close our eyes, please? God, we love you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for the privilege that it is to come together. We thank you for the privilege that it is to wake up being right with you every day. God, you're, I pray that you would awake us to righteousness. Awake us to right standing with you. Awake us to that revelation once again. We want it to be fresh every day, God. We never, yeah, we love you, Holy Spirit. I ask that you would use people yet to change a nation, Father, that you would simplify it for us. That simple obedience changes nations. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Holy Spirit. Have your way in the city. Have your way in these neighborhoods. Have your way in the workplaces, God. God, we ask that you would use us to make a difference. We don't want to come to you just to be fed by you, God. We want to come to you to learn the family business. We want to come to you to be led by you. We want to make a difference with you, God. We love you, Holy Spirit. We love you, Holy Spirit. Can you just put your hands on somebody next to you right now? Just put your hand on their shoulder if you feel comfortable with that. We're just going to pray for them right now. Holy Spirit, we thank you for every person here. God, we ask that just a fresh awakening to righteousness would come right now. Maybe some of you it's become normal, the fact you're right with God. It's like an old revelation, but I ask the Holy Spirit would awaken you right now to that revelation once again. That it would, it would become overwhelming, God's love once again. The fact that you wake up right with God. We thank you, Holy Spirit. Awake us to righteousness. And right now, just, just pray for healing in their bodies right now. I feel like God's going to break out in healing in this moment. Just like the woman got healed so easily in the beginning, it's not hard. Just release healing in their bodies in Jesus' name. Right now, we command healing in the name of Jesus. We command every back to be healed or neck pain to leave. Someone has migraine headaches. We command the migraine headaches to leave in Jesus' name. The carpal tunnel in someone's wrist be healed in Jesus' name right now. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Healing right now in the name of Jesus. We release your healing presence into this room. Someone's been struggling to sleep at night. We just release perfect sleep. No anxiety. We thank you for peace that passes all understanding. Peace that makes no sense in the midst of our storms. Oh, we love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.